Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, Bachelor Creek. It is so good to be with you. Uh, my wife, Tara, and I have been uh, looking forward to this date as soon as we knew that we were going to be here on this weekend. And uh, we, I just have to let you know, we have been so uh, overwhelmed with, with gratitude for the generosity and the kindness uh, that we have been shown uh, throughout this entire process. And I am so excited to get into God's Word together with you today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, as you're turning there, I have to admit that I have a hard time being present. I'm constantly thinking about what's ahead, what's next. I'm a big to-do list guy, and, and as soon as I get something done, I cross it off and I move on to the next thing, so I'm always looking ahead. I've got goals, I've got plans, I've got dreams, and I'm sure several of you are the same way. But at the same time, I can, I can get pretty nostalgic. I, I've got this app on my phone called TimeHop, you may have heard of it, uh, but what it does is each day you open it up and it shows you what pictures you've taken or what you've posted on that day in the past. And so this week I opened up the app and I was reminded that two years ago this week, my son, who was my youngest son, who was three years old at the time, he decided he wanted to give himself a haircut. And so he went into the bathroom and got my beard trimmer and took a chunk out of the top of his head. It looked like he had a putting green uh, on the top of his head. But this app is, is, is awesome because you, you open it up and you, you look at it and you're reminded of, you know, birthdays you've celebrated, vacations you've taken together, just all these, all these memories. And each day when you open it up, it's like you're taking a trip down memory lane. So I tend to look forward and look backwards pretty easily, but for some reason, the present feels uncomfortable. I know personally, I need to learn to be present. To be present with my family, to be present with my friends, to be present with the people that I serve with, to be present with the people that I meet in the community. And I think one of the reasons why I struggle with the present is because when we talk about our faith, we almost always emphasize two aspects, the past and the future. We talk about how Jesus saved, our, saved us from our sins past tense, and we talk about how we're looking forward to when Jesus returns again, future tense, so we can go to spend eternity with him. Now, there's nothing wrong with those two aspects. Both, both, both of those aspects are true. Jesus changes our past. Jesus changes our future, but Jesus also changes our present. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. That's the title of the sermon series that we're in right now, but as Tyler shared last week, it's, it's, it's much more than just a sermon series. It's a battle cry. It's, it's a rallying cry that, that brings us together. It's the heartbeat of this church. Last week, uh, Tyler kicked the series off by talking about the, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight and about how Jesus changed her past and how he changes our past by forgiving and forgetting our sin. And today, I want us to look at how Jesus changes our present. It's a story that may be familiar to some of you, but if you're here today, you're watching online, and you're hearing it for the first time, I bet it will quickly become one of your favorites. We find the story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Today you will see a man who grasped the vision of what Jesus wants to do in your life here and now. It's a remarkable story of a man who was one of the most stingiest, most fiscally corrupt people in the Bible, and yet he became, I'd argue, 
the most generous man in the entire New Testament. I want you to see what he saw and show you how to live continually with the vision of what he saw right in front of your eyes. Luke 19, beginning in verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He was a chief tax collector. Now, tax collector's not gonna be on anybody's list of favorite jobs. Not, not a huge approval rating in, in, the, in the tax collector business. In fact, I was reading an article where the term IRS agent had become so unpopular that they introduced a new name, tax policy compliance directors. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not sure that's any better. But back then, a tax collector was more than just an unpopular government official. A tax collector was considered a traitor and a thief. You see, whenever the Roman Empire would come in and they would take over a city like they had most of Israel, they wanted to, to raise funds and capital for the emperor so that they could expand, and so they would tax the city pretty heavily. But they knew that if they sent a Roman official into the city, well, that Roman official wouldn't know where all the money flows in and out of town. You know, there's black markets and, and money kind of has a way of, of filtering its way through a city. Well, someone on the outside would never do that, and so the Romans would hire a local. They would hire a native to, to come in to collect the tax, and they would tell them, this is how much money we want from you. Oh, and here's a guard of soldiers to help you enforce the tax. And whatever you get beyond what we ask you to give, you can keep for yourself. And so these guys would extract huge sums of money from their own people for Rome, and in the process, they'd keep a ton of money for themselves, and they would become filthy rich. And if people didn't comply, they would have them beaten or even murdered. And again, they're doing this for Rome, against their neighbors, their friends, the people they grew up with? Can you imagine a worse person? The Jewish Mishnah, which is basically a, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it said that a tax collector was so detestable that they shouldn't even be considered a human being. The Mishnah said that it wasn't a sin to lie to a tax collector because lying to an animal wasn't a sin. And Zacchaeus, he isn't just a tax collector, he is the archetolones, the chief tax collector. And he's the chief tax collector in the richest city in Israel. So let me ask you this. How much did money have a hold of his heart to cause him to live like this? No one betrays their own people naturally. This is a man who is so possessed, so gripped by the love of money that he is willing to cheat, steal, lie, sell out his closest relationships in order to get it. Verse three. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Zacchaeus, you see, was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he's trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, but he can't because he's vertically challenged. Now, here's the thing. 
When a guy is short, you don't mind if he stands in front of you. You just look over the top of him, no big deal. But this crowd won't let Zacchaeus in anywhere. He's trying to make his way through the crowd, trying to get a catch, catch, a, catch a glimpse of Jesus, and they're like, boom, hip check. Boom, hip check. You're not getting through here because we hate you. You wee little disgusting pig. You bad man. And so what does Zacchaeus do? He climbs up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now, real quick, those of you who are searching, those of you who are seeking, maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online because you're intrigued by Jesus. Don't let Jesus's hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous admirers keep you from getting a glimpse of Jesus. Zacchaeus had to climb up into a tree to see above Jesus's followers, and you might need to do that as well. I, I get it. Some of you are intrigued by Jesus, but there are some of us who have turned you off by our hypocrisy, by our judgmental attitudes. And, 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 and so I'm telling you, you're going to need to climb the tree to get above, to get a glimpse of Jesus, and, and don't give up. Keep pressing in. All right? Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I'm not sure you catch how bizarre this is. Jesus is one of the most well-known people in Israel. By this point in his ministry, he's a celebrity. And he's going to Israel's most powerful city, Jericho. So for the United States, that'd be like New York City. And he doesn't go there and ask to meet with the most famous or the most popular New Yorker. I don't know who that would be. Derek Jeter, I don't know. No, it wouldn't be a politician. He, he chooses the most despised, the most unpopular man in the whole city, the wee little wicked man, Zacchaeus. You know of all the names for Jesus? Friend of sinners is perhaps my favorite. Oh, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Verse six, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, there's a scandalous order to the story. In that day, to eat with someone, to, to go into their house and to share a meal, it was a sign of a very intimate relationship. It meant that you were accepting them. It meant that you were committing yourself to them in, 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 a, in a relationship of fellowship and, and love. And I want you to see that Jesus is extending this invitation to Zacchaeus before he cleans up his life. And so the Pharisees in verse 7, they're like, what? He's eating with a guy who is a sinner? Not was, is? You see, if, if Zacchaeus had cleaned up his life and then Jesus had gone in, they probably wouldn't have objected to it. But Jesus goes to eat with him first. Here's what I want you to get. Jesus is teaching Zacchaeus the difference between the gospel and religion. Every other religion in the world says, change, clean up, and then God will accept you. But the gospel reverses that. The gospel says, God has offered you acceptance. Now, in light of that invitation, change. In the gospel, God's acceptance is not the reward for having cleaned up your life. The gospel is the power to actually clean it up. Watch this in, in verse 8. 
But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Salvation has come to this house. Religion points outward and says, Zacchaeus, go do that and then you'll be saved. But Jesus' gospel is Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. It just walked in freely as a gift and because of that, you'll change. And oh my, what a change it brought. Anyone that he had stolen from, he restored back fourfold. Now the Levitical law stated that if you stole from someone and you got caught, you were supposed to pay them back and then add 20%. There was only one situation where you would be asked to pay back four times the amount and that's if you stole someone's cow. Because you know, of course, that would cause utter financial ruin, right? <laughs> How do we feel about the livestock jokes, yes, no? I'm in Indiana, okay, can we do this? Need to make a note. Listen, Zacchaeus is not giving this money back because he has to. He's doing it because he wants to. See, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to give away 50%. That's just gravy. That's just a cherry on top. In fact, nowhere in this story does Jesus give any direct commands about giving, about money. Zacchaeus just does it freely. This same guy who was willing to steal and cheat and sell out his family in order to get money, he's now giving it away like it's Halloween candy. What has happened to Zacchaeus? I think it's simple. Money no longer has a hold of him. We little Zacchaeus has found a greater treasure than money. He found Jesus. He saw that Jesus was a greater God than money could ever be. See, Jesus loved Zacchaeus. Money couldn't do that. Zacchaeus could love money, but it could never love him back. Jesus forgave Zacchaeus and pursued after him even after Zacchaeus had failed him. Money couldn't do that. Money wouldn't do that. Money says that if you fail me, I'll leave you behind. You'll be miserable forever. So you better alienate your family. You better cheat your friends. You better do whatever it takes to get me. Pursue me at all costs. Zacchaeus realized that Jesus was establishing a kingdom that would last forever. He knew money couldn't do that. He knew that, that his money would, be, would die with him. It's interesting to notice that the smallest virus threatens to take away the greatest possessions of the richest man. And yet we see Jesus. He's the man who has power over sickness. He's the man who has power over the grave. He spoke and lame men walked. The blind saw. The dead came out of their graves. Jesus could do what money was incapable of. It reminds me of Psalm 1611 when it says, You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand, full of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Zacchaeus got just a taste of that. Just a taste. And when he did, money lost its hold on him. And so he gave it away freely. 
to help others, to do justice, to to serve the poor, to make a difference in other people's lives here and now. So what do we do with the story? I think there's a few lessons for us. I want to focus on Zacchaeus' statement in verse 8 when he says, look, Lord, here and now. Because the emphasis on the present tense reality of what happened in Zacchaeus' life is the same thing that Jesus wants to do in our life right here, right now. So lesson number one. Here and now, the gospel changes you. Here and now, the gospel changes you. Zacchaeus didn't become generous because Jesus commanded him to do it. Do you see a command in here anywhere? No. He became generous because he wanted to. He uses the word joyfully there in verse 6. This wasn't about law. It was about love. One afternoon with Jesus did more than 10,000 sermons on the law of generosity. Because the gospel does what thousands of sermons on generosity can't do. The gospel actually changes your heart. It releases you from your captivity to money. It releases you and allows you to to love others. It helps you to delight in seeing other people's needs being met. It helps you to delight in seeing people introduced to the gospel. Zacchaeus didn't sit through a sermon on generosity. No, he soaked in the grace of Jesus. And that did more than 10,000 sermons could ever do. And we, we, even more than Jesus, have experienced the grace of the gospel. It's the last statement that Jesus makes in verse 10 that shows the the relevance for us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We see in Zacchaeus' story, our story. We see a picture of what Jesus did for us. Zacchaeus deserved to be despised, yet Jesus invited him into the warmth of fellowship. He paid him the highest social compliment of the day. He invited him to eat with him. That's what Jesus did for us. We deserved scorn. God gave us grace. We deserved rejection. He gave us fellowship. Isaiah 51, 17 tells us that he drank the cup of judgment so that we could drink the cup of joy. Zacchaeus climbed a tree because he was despised. Jesus would die hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, cursed or despised is everyone who is hung on a tree. And the Jews would regard everyone who died hanging on a tree to be cursed, to be forsaken by God. Church, do you see what's happening here? Jesus traded places with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus got the warmth of fellowship because Jesus got the scorn of contempt. Zacchaeus got the joy, Jesus got the pain. Isaiah 53 tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. And just a small taste of that turns Zacchaeus into the most generous man in the entire New Testament. So how much more should our experience of the gospel change us? He just got a crumb. We get the feast. 
The only way our wee, little, stingy, fearful hearts will change is by looking at the cross. And when you look at the cross, you won't be, you won't have to be commanded to give like Zacchaeus. You'll give without even being told so. And listen, that, that is the mark of a person who's been touched by the gospel. They don't need to be made to feel guilty in order to be generous. They don't need to sit through a stirring sermon series. They just do it naturally as a response to God's grace in their lives. In Hebrew, the word generosity literally means to saturate with water. We know that water is a symbol of life. And so as believers, we are to overflow in a way that brings life to others. In Greek, generosity means ready to distribute, ready to give of our time and our talents and our treasures in order to bless others. And when the gospel touches you, you become that way because that's how Jesus is. He's full of grace for you. Scripture tells us that that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. That though he was God, he came and took on the nature of a servant for you. That though he knew no sin, he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when you meet him, when you experience him, you fall so in love with him that you become like him. And as he was to you, you become to others. And you don't just become generous for a season. You become generous for a lifetime. You don't need to be smacked up into generosity. No, you soar spiritually. And you're not just generous in one area. You become generous in all areas. Generous with your time. Generous with your talents. Generous with your forgiveness. You see, if you're generous in only one area, then all you're doing is simply responding to a guilt need. But when the gospel touches you, you become generous in all areas, and you become generous for a lifetime because it becomes a part of who you are. Maybe a better way of saying it is those who truly experience the gospel become like the gospel, full of grace. The second lesson I think we learn is that here and now, you were blessed by God. Right here, right now, you experience the riches of God's blessing in your life. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not just some of them, all of them. And then a few verses later in verse 7, it says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And it's not just that our past sins are forgiven, our present sins are forgiven. We are presently forgiven. We have access to God and fellowship with God through Jesus. Right now, at this moment, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. And because of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of God with with confidence, with boldness. We have been blessed by God, church. But not only that, we have power over sin. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We have the power right now because of the grace of God to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But not only that, right now God blesses us because we are victorious. We have victory right now. Romans 8 tells us that we are more than conquerors. 
One of the most interesting and ironic battles in United States military history was the Battle of New Orleans. It was the final battle of the, the War of 1812 between Britain and the United States. What made it so ironic is that the soldiers fighting in the Battle of New Orleans had no idea that the war had formally ended 18 days earlier. On December 14th, 1814, the British signed the Treaty of Ghent. But word wouldn't reach the soldiers in New Orleans before their battle on January 8th. What, what these soldiers didn't realize is that they were fighting a war that had already been won. And I'm too afraid, and I'm, I'm afraid that too often we live our lives as if the outcome of the battle is still undecided. That the war still hangs in the balance. Church, what we need to realize is that Jesus has won the victory, and if we belong to him, we are victors right now. We have his spirit inside of us, his word to guide us, and his people beside us. We are blessed by God, and we need to live in that reality. The third lesson I think we learn is that here and now, God wants to use you. Here and now, God wants to use you. We have been saved past tense so that we can be put in a position so that we can be clean vessels for God to use us in the present tense. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it, it talks about, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's, it's not the work of yourselves. It's, it's the gift of God. And then in verse 10, it says, we are God's handiwork or we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What that's telling us is that God has plans for us. God has a purpose for your life. God calls you to live on mission for the sake of his great name, and that's what he did to Zacchaeus. Jesus changed Zacchaeus' present. He went from being an outcast to accepted. He went from being stingy to generous. He went from being selfish to selfless. When he encountered Jesus, he left. And he no longer looked at his own wants and his own desires, but he began to look outward. He began to look at the people around him, and he began to say, how can I help this person? How can I meet a need over here? And Jesus wants to do the same in our life. Jesus changes our present so that we can be present in the lives of others. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around right now. I want you to think about the people in your circle of influence, the people that you rub shoulders with on a daily, a weekly basis. And I want you to think about what it means to be present with them. Because there is a huge difference between proximity and presence. Proximity is being in the same vicinity as someone. My wife Tara and I, we flew in on Friday night and we sat for a couple of hours in a big aluminum tube uh, packed together uh, like sardines. We were in close proximity to 100 people. But we weren't present with them. People had their headphones on. People were asleep. People had their nose in a book. We were around a lot of people, but we weren't being present. Being present means intentionality. It means that you're invested in that person. So, so married couples, are, are you present in your marriage? Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book probably a quarter century ago called The Five Love Languages. Each person has a love language. One, one of my wife's highest love languages is quality time. And so if, if you're married to somebody who really values quality time, I'm just gonna give you some free advice, okay? Quality time does not equal you, your spouse, and your iPhone, okay? 
Being present means that, that you're locking eyes, you are engaged, that, that there are no other distractions, that you are present with them. Are you present in your marriage? Are you present with your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord? That restaurant that, that you go to week after week after week and you have the same waiter, the same waitress, are you present with them? What about the coworker who sits next to you in the office? Are you present with them? Or parents, are you present with your kids? One of the greatest pieces of advice that, that I've ever been given is that if your kid asks to play with you, if your kid asks to do something with you, whatever you're doing, drop it and go and be with them. Go in the driveway and shoot hoops. Go pick up a book and, and read with them because that is time that is well spent. You will never regret a second of that, of being present. Church, be present. What we do matters. Our past salvation influences our present decisions, which determines our future results. And the bottom line is, God wants to use you. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're watching online. And you're struggling to make sense of your life. You lack a sense of purpose. You just feel like you're kind of in the rat race. That every day you're existing, but you're not really living you need to know that here and now, Jesus wants to change you. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus did with Zacchaeus? Jesus told Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to this house. And I just wonder if the same thing needs to be said of you. That today, salvation has come to your house. Today, salvation has come to your families. Today, salvation has come to your life. Like Zacchaeus, are you ready to receive Jesus into your home? Into your life? Are you ready to be changed by Jesus? Because Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to be our Savior, and oh, what a Savior he is. That we have a Savior who would be a friend of sinners. That we would have a Savior who, who loves us so much that, that he would die for us. That he would not just change our past, but, but God, that he would change our present. That right now we can wake up every day and live with purpose and live with passion. Because we know that, that you have blessed us. We know that you have changed us. We know that you want to use us. And so God, I pray that we would live in the present tense reality. That it's not just that we're, we're saved from our past sins. That not, it's not just that we've got a, a future in, in heaven with you. But right here, right now, God, you want to do a good work in our life. And you have called us, like Zacchaeus, to be present. And I pray as, as, as we leave this place, as we leave this service, God, that that would be, that would be the thing that we leave with. That I'm committing to being present. Wherever I go, whoever I meet, whoever I see, because you were present with us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.